Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast with Miriam Jones and Adam Rumack. The Beyond Listening podcast is where we have conversations with people who are living with passion and purpose through their work, sharing ideas, insights, strategies, and ways of seeing the world and work which will challenge and enlighten. The Beyond Listening podcast is brought to you by We Are Open Circle, a social impact business that helps change makers organizations and community groups evolve and thrive with integrity in our rapidly changing world. Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast with Miriam and Adam, and we're here again with this very original part of our podcast. So we started last week with our two guests, India and Eileen, and we discovered that if we do invite two guests on, particularly India and Eileen, that it was important that we made it a two-parter. So we left last week with a cliffhanger. Thank you, Eileen. She had a she had a, 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 a kind of cheeky grin on her face. She, she loved leaving us hanging. And so now we're here. We're going to start with your story. Um, Eileen, your story of of when you first discovered difference and the impact that had on you and on your life. And now I'm specifically talking about racial difference, if you will. And so um, um, my story goes back to when we were children, when I was a child, and and um, and we were. I was born in Cleveland. My family lived in Cleveland uh, for the first part of my life, and. My mother was from New Orleans. So in the summers, we would go back and forth from my grandmother's house to Cleveland and we'd spend time with my grandmother to visit her. And initially when we used to go, you know, my father who's brown skin, he would have to drive us 21 hours, which was the driving time between Cleveland and uh, New Orleans. And and you know, we would have to we couldn't stop. We could stop to buy gas, but we couldn't stop to go to the bathroom. You know, so going to the bathroom for me as a girl was a milk carton on the side of the road. And for, for the boys, they could do differently, but we have to stop. And that's how we would go to the bathroom between the doors of the car. You know, and so, and of course, it did not seem particularly at that point different. I didn't. I didn't know why, but you know, um, um, but that's what what happened. And so, and so, having to drive straight through, not being able to get out and eat, you know, so we would either bring food with us, you know, or try to find usually just bring food with us because there really wasn't a place for us to stop and have public accommodations to eat, you know. Then as time went on, and I, as I got a little older, my mother would drive down, and my father wouldn't. My mother has a, has a lighter complexion than I. And and um and so does her twin. So the twins will be driving. The kids look like rainbows in the backseat, right? We look like all colors of rainbow. And we would get to a place like Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and they would say, okay, we're going to stop and get some food. You guys get down on the floor in the back and don't get up until we come back. And so they would walk in and, and, and pass for the time it took for them to get food, and then they would bring it back. And then, But it was more like a game for us at the time. You know, we we weren't um, because that's that's the way it happened back then. You know, until we did find that there was something called the Green Book. 
uh, you know, that you might have heard of. And that was where finally um, um, they actually did places that black owned places where you could stop. So then we could go to say Nashville where there was a black historically black college and we could stay at, um, at a, um, a hotel that would cater to, or a motel usually that would cater to black people. You know, and so even back then, this is 70 years ago, you know, really when I was just a little girl, I remember that now and, and look back on it, look back on it differently, obviously, than when I was experiencing it, you know, but, but it gave me a complete context for understanding what it meant, what discrimination meant in a, in a, in a large way. And how did, how did you think that impacted your view of the world? Having grown up in the North, and yet traveling south was made it different because I went to, for instance, I went to a Catholic school in Cleveland, which was right, 98% white. The black people were my family and a few other black families that lived in the area. But that's because my mother was from New Orleans and she was Catholic, you know, so, so there was that culture. And then there was the culture of the South, which was completely different, you know, um, and but we lived in black neighborhoods and and even back then, you know, people kind of took care of each other. You know, so the fact that we didn't venture out you know, into into um, into other areas of the community where we were not wanted didn't really mean a whole lot for us as children. You know, I think as I became an adult and um, well, actually in high school where where I was called to begin doing civil rights work, begin doing social action work. And it was as a result of, I think, my experiences as a child, as well as the fact that in the 60s, which is when it, the late 50s, early 60s is when it was, that, you know, the Catholic, Catholics were being pretty radical too. You know, and so even my high school was supporting social action and, and civil rights work, and I was able to, to just dive into it there. Then in the sixties, I was on campus and we were raising hell, yeah. And and um, and just and some of us were raising more hell than others, you know. So it ended up with me being at the University of Cincinnati and marching in with the United Black Association to make demands to the president, you know. So so it's been a progression, but it's always been there, and it's been there just as a result, you know, of my life and my parents teaching us to serve. I think, and that's between those two things, you get called to do what's yours for your community, not just yourself. Um, I don't know if I have a question, but I'm, I remember that India, we were talking about the continued segregation and divisions uh, that are all over the United States that were actually more, in some ways more, we sort of resegregated ourselves um, by moving to communities that of people that look like us or share uh, similar cultural backgrounds. Um, as I'm hearing your story, I'm thinking about how far I feel personally from your experience. Just growing up, being born in California in the eighties um, and not having even the experience of the Northern, North and South culture, even as it is now, you know, it's just, it's just so different. Um, and I wonder, so there's no question in there really. Um, but my, 
but I'm thinking about when we talk about the United States and we're, we talk about it like it's just, it's one thing, you know, it's one, one experience. And we're so, it's so diverse, even geographically and historically, um, not to mention all the, the cultures that are here and the backgrounds and the personal complexities within that. Um, and I guess I'm curious more than a question about how you now in 2020, when is 2021, how you make, make sense of all the changes that you've experienced, um, in your lifetime and yeah. And how you, and how it's changed over the course, how, how you've changed over the course of all the changes that we've, we've been through as a country and, and as a world and in your local community too. And you, and you talk, talk a little bit about, talk a little bit about your teen years and, and, uh, your, and what you, what maybe you learned and how you responded to things that happened at your school and, you know, tell them about the track, tell them about track, the track, uh, track team. Yeah. That's interesting because I think there was, there are two things and one is kind of my experiences around gender and the other is my experience around race. Um, and I think, you know, if I answer the question that you asked my mother about when you, when I became aware it was in my high school years. Um, you know, and, and I would say the, the story she was referring to about my track team was that my school didn't have a girls track, didn't have a women's track team. And they told us we couldn't. We couldn't run. They were like, well, sorry, you can't run. And so I don't even remember how I, what we did. You know, it's probably like my watching Eileen activism moments. But I literally... I'm sure it was. I mean, she was like, well, why can't you just go tell them you're going to run? I mean, just go try out. Why don't you just do it? And I was like, okay, well, okay, we'll do that. And so there were four of us, four young women who went and tried out for the men's track team and we got on it. And all season we ran against men, which was really something. We always lost, but we did pretty well. You know, no, actually we didn't always lose. I think there was like one or tw once or twice where we didn't lose, like, you know, lose outright, didn't come in the last place. But my point in that is, is, is that I kind of, I think that what you learn through those kinds of situations is that, you know, you just kind of have to keep pushing on. Like you can't, and the kind of, I didn't know any differently is the whole thing too. Like I didn't know to do anything differently. There wasn't any other option really. I mean, I could have just kind of sat around and it was really interesting as I was listening, Adam, to you talk about California, because I live in California too, but not later than you. Um, later than you're talking about, not later than you, later than you're talking about. And um, and I would say that it was really interesting, just kind of when you were saying you didn't have that experience of the North and the South, because I had these very same conversations with Black people in California. Their, their reality was so different than, you know, the reality of our white counterparts in California in the 90s when I was there in the early 90s. And so it's a really interesting just kind of dynamic to think about, you know, that really we do live in different worlds depending on your race and maybe and even your gender. And the thing about it for us is that because that's all we've ever known, we learn we learn we learn navigation out of the womb essentially. Like it's just the navigation is something that we just do because that's all we've ever known and that's the only option you really have in a society where you don't have the power to make the shifts until people come together and collectively start raising their voices in the way that we've seen it start to happen again more recently. And you're starting to see shifts in people waking up. 
you know, and saying, hey, wait, wait a minute, is this still happening? We thought we were post-racial. We thought this, we thought that. So yeah, it's a really interesting because I, I think the thing that sticks with me out of all of this is the navigation that you learn from the womb if you have to. And it, it's just the way things are for you and you know how to move through it to get what you want and some better than others. Yeah, but that the, one of the reasons that I asked you about the track one was because I I specifically taught you how to navigate it. You don't remember, but so you say it, you do. You would say it's out of the womb. But what happened was I was an attorney, and I called the school, and I asked to speak to the principal, and I said uh, my my girls want to run track, and the athletic director says no. He said, well, that's not going to happen. He said he said you know you wait. You know, you call him tomorrow morning, and and um, you know, you know, he said you send the girls back over. That's what he said. You send the girls back over, and and I'll take care of it. Well, the girls went back over, and he said no, still, right? So I waited there. So, and when he called me, I was working at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. So when he called, that somebody like that answered the phone and said, "United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit." Well, guess what? That's a, those are federal laws we were talking about. So it was like, bing, bing. He was going to be, he was good anyway, by the way, the principal was, it was, it was the athletic director. Yeah. And so I had to call him back and say, that didn't work that time. He said, he said, are you at your desk? I said, yes. He said, you call that man in five minutes. And I did. And he said, yes. He says, well, they, uh, yes, you send the girls back. They'll, they'll come and, you know, they'll do it. Because what I told them was, use me when you have to, but don't bring out the cannons if you can handle it. You know, so that navigation had was very specific when it came to the things that they encountered. You know, and so that's how they learned to navigate it in the same way that my parents actually did me when I get right down to it. You know, my father, both of them would, would tell us, ah, here's what you want to do. Like when my father and I went to the airport to drop my mother off, and I must have been 12, so it was a long time ago again. We sat at a coffee counter, and we were the only ones, and the woman who was waiting us wouldn't turn around. So other people started coming and sitting down, and so then she started turning around and asked them what they wanted. Until finally, all the seats were full, and we were the only ones she hadn't waited on, right? I was about to go across the across the counter and knock her out. And my father was sitting there saying, just kind of holding me. He said, don't, I'll handle this. Well, so so finally he spoke up and he said, oh, you've waited on everyone else. Will you wait on us now? And she just kind of shocked. And so she said, what, what do you want? We had two cup, a cup of coffee. We had a cup of coffee. And I, it, it was like $2, right? He gave her five. I said, why the heck you give her $5? But she would, he said, she'll never forget us. She will never forget us. I said, oh, okay. I still couldn't have done it at my age. I was still too mad. But the point is, is that our parents specifically, specifically taught us ways to navigate how we walked in the world and how we encountered racism. And, um, and depending on where you lived, right, it was different. Mm. It was different if you were in Iowa, you know, than if you were in California or Ohio. And this is an extremely diverse country. If you think about, if you think about English and France, England and France, and all the European countries that are about as big as a minute, when you put them in the United States, 
and really think about it for a minute, just the geography of the United States causes all that diversity to be so different. It's like growing up in different countries, even though we call it one. You gave me an opportunity to sort of formulate a little bit more uh, deeply, maybe, which is, um, I think in the, I think there was an illusion for, for, for me, but, and I, I mean, I, I kind of want to generalize to, to white people, white, light skinned people, white people in California that we were more progressed, you know, in terms of integration, um, diversity. Um, I mean, I learned, I, I had classes on, for example, African-American literature was my main literature course for one or two years. Um, and so, so the illusion of that for me, um, living in California where, um, those, it wasn't in our face. We were protected from that in a lot of ways. Um, where, whereas like growing up in the South or in the, on the East coast, I think that with that direct history right there in our face, in your faces, maybe if you're not. For, for white people, it might be more, it might've been more of a conversation. I think I was kind of reflecting on that. I remember just to say my first realization that racism really existed in the world, and I'm gonna sound super naive and super white here, um, was when I went to South Africa and saw overt racism happening everywhere. I remember standing in a line, like you were, just like you were saying, um, Eileen standing in line behind uh, a black man and the guy at the counter actually pointing to me and saying, I'm going to help you first. And just being shocked by that. But then coming back to the States and starting to see it everywhere. And of course now, so I think it was a reflection on the, like the more mosaic seg forms of segregation that have happened in California or in, in the, in our time now and in India, your comment on that last time and how that sort of for, for white, for white folks has sort of helped us to until recently kind of avoid having to realize how far we still need to, to travel. So I don't know if there's an even better question there, but I wanted to try to articulate that a little bit more. Um, and that geographical differences, you know, helping to maintain the illusion, I guess, for some of us. So there's just a lot of stories is what it boils down to. Everybody has a different story. There are just myriad, a myriad of stories about race, just like there is across the world, by the way. I mean, it's the same same thing, just people telling the different stories of it based on the culture where they sit, but, it's, but it exists across this planet. You know, and so it just so happens when you live in a large country like this, you're going to have more. You're probably going to have more um, simply because the experiences that people have are so are so vastly different within the same there's, country. There's also a part I've always, I mean, because I'm, I, even though I was born in America, I spent so much time away. And when I, when I came back to live in America, I always, I really noticed the difference in, and, um, and I always wondered whether I, it started me on a thread of actually inquiry about the way that a, a country, just like the way that we're formed, you know, the way a country is formed and the impact of slavery um, had um, on the American culture, you know, to, in its foundational story and has now. And, um, and it, you know, the way that that has influenced the navigation that you're talking about. 
Um, you know, I, I compared it to Australia, which has a particular navigation with its Indigenous population, which is very different from New Zealand, for example. Um, and I'm wondering, right. you know, any comments on, on the way that, you know, on that for you um, and, uh, yeah, and what just the way that you might have felt that impact in, in your navigation. So, so let me say this. This is what came up for me in, in what you said, and it may not make any sense to you, but I've always preferred the north, the south to the north. Generally speaking, I don't I don't consider California part of that. I mean, there's just a part of the West where they're a whole different is a whole different thing. But when you talk about the north and the south, I, I have always said I prefer the south, and people don't get that. You know, and I said, I prefer the South because their stories are more authentic and because they actually, if they like you, they like you. If they don't, they don't. And so, it's, and they learn how to, how to navigate their ways in much clearer fashion, it seems, much clearer fashion. In the, in the North, it, the, the systemic racism is, is more insidious at, at this point. Because it, it, it is, because people don't believe it, first of all. So this isn't the South. Yeah, it may not be the South, but trust me, it's just it's here and it's systemic and it beats us down every day. Yeah, and so so it's harder to navigate because people, first of all, don't wanna believe it. And second of all, they're really even much more ignorant of it. You know, and and, and so um so those are just the kind of things that come up for me as you ask that question. Um, Andy, I see you. Uh, Nani, you got anything you want to add to that? No, I think that is spot on. I mean, I would say that I also prefer the South. You know, I went to school in Atlanta, you know, and, um, and, and have spent a lot of time in the South. And the difference for me is that, you know, where you're talking kind of interracial relationships, friendships, for example, or people that I worked with, like I... Like you knew where people stood and I, that I can live with any day, any time of day. Cause if I know, then I can just stay clear. Right. And, and I found that my relationships, my relationships with white people were much more authentic because I, I knew if they were with me, they were really with me in that, in that situation, in that environment. And it's a very different thing. And if they really liked me, they really liked me because they would be fine being hanging out with me in, in Georgia. Right. Which is, a, which is a very different thing. Right. You know where, where you are. And I would say that, you know, Differently in the North, I've always, I've often wondered what was behind that, especially working in really corporate environments like Wall Street, where, where I was for 25 years. You're always, I was always wondering if that was something that was underlying some of the people that I experienced when I had ch challenging moments, but they were never going to say that was it. Right. And for me, and, and here's the thing is that like when you experience any one of the isms, people who experience the isms, women, you know, but, but gender, not just women, gender or sexual orientation or race, when you experience isms, you know it. The, the issue is when you have intersectional isms, you're not sure which one it is, <laughs> you know, and so unless somebody makes it really specific, you know, and so that it's a really interesting thing when you have mo a multiple of marginalized um, identities because you're not sure. This is, you know, it's bringing me back to that question I asked a little while ago, you know, this thread of how things change and how things stay the same. And, um, you know, in this podcast, one of the inspirations is, is um, Carl Gabran's poem, 
you know, which the, the main word is love, um, work is love made visible. Work is love made visible. And in this, we have a unique pairing in you two because you found your way through many different careers, you know, lawyer, being a, you know, a legal profession, working in courts, as we've heard, India, you working all around the world in huge corporations in the financial market. You found this place back to this shared work in your origins. You know, we talked about civil action mm. and now you're back with this shared work and um, and this work of really transform transformation. And I'm I'm interested in in you know, you know, I'm interested in that. Like we're interested in what what is it like to have come back to this shared place of work and and um, and and how do you how do you create transformation through it? Can I jump in on that one, Mom? I have some I have something very sure. specific to say about that. Um, it was really <laughs> funny because like, and she'll be like, no, no, but she did. She used to always rib me for being a capitalist, and when I was in Wall on Wall Street, and so, so, <laughs> and but I will say no, no. But what I will say is that you know she's right in some extent to some extent, but more so than being right. I'm, I'm saying that in jest. I couldn't have do the work that I do now in the way that I do it had I not done that because I wouldn't have understood what what it's like in those places and spaces. And I often think that, you know, like now my ability to go into corporations and have com real conversations about race, I know how to approach it. I know what to say. I know how to engage people to even let them to even get them to engage. I've been through it already and I've been there and I'm coming from a different lens. And so I'm super grateful for having had the experience of being in those places. I think that my mother always knew she was engineering me back into doing what I should be doing to start. And, you know, just like she was navigating me through this, all this other stuff, calling people. And I didn't know she was calling people so that I could get stuff done. Right. So I'm sure that she was, she's been navigating me and she's always kept me centered in service, always, always, always centered in service, centered in my spiritual work, centered in making sure that I was being authentic, not allowing me to take the shortcuts on authenticity for sure. And that if I was going to be a capitalist, just damn own it and be proud. And if that's what you're going to do, be a proud capitalist. And so, and so I'm just kidding, mom. But, um, but no, but honestly, it, it really was that. And I just, I want to say openly to my mother, thank you for making sure that I always kind of stayed the course. And even, even though, you know, um, I went a direction that I probably, that was probably counter to what I knew, I always did remain authentic in those spaces. And eventually the pressure of those spaces became enough for me to step out of them and step back into where I needed to be because it was getting crazy. She used to talk about it all the time anyway. She would say, oh, so-and-so John King, you know, he's been working in corporate for 20 years. And he said, I got to get out of here and I got to go and do, live my dream. And I, I said, okay. So I'm just, I was just waiting for her to get there. But, but I do think that people have their, I do know that everybody's got their own uh, journey and it, and that she has hers. And you really, if you let yourself, it doesn't make a difference where you go. You get equipped. You get equipped with how to navigate your way uh, to humanity, back into humanity, back into how we treat one another. Because in the end, for me, that's, that's all there is. And, and how we treat each other, how we treat this earth, that's it. It, it really, that's it, <laughs> you know, so everything, and I try to keep it simple so that it doesn't get overly uh, difficult for anybody to have the conversation, anybody to just, you know, grapple with it. You know, um, 
but it's also I'm at a different stage now. You know, I'm, I'm I am officially an elder. <laughs> I mean, somebody actually gave me an award. That's what I'm saying. Somebody in my community, my community did. You know, and so, and so that was my partial initiation, and it was really quite. Um, wonderful and loving to know that, okay, now I can step back. So I'm giving it to y'all, all all three of y'all. This is yours now. I'm going to be here and I will um, do the part that is mine to do now, but it's certainly different. And so I'm happy to turn it over to you all who have had, even the three of you who've had very varied uh, experiences and yet are doing the work doing the same work you know and so i just want to say you know i have to jump in here for a second because you know your girl was getting the award and i was like how was it mom she was like the people were old i was like girl girl no 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 that's a different that was a different old people award but she got Oh, well, okay, we, we we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take on this challenge. But to take on this challenge, we need some stories of transformation. Can you give us some stories? And and I'm gonna spread those that that challenge that you gave Eileen, not just to the three of us here, but to all the people listening. Eileen's thrown out a challenge, and so give us some help, India and Eileen. Can you tell us some stories where you've seen transformation happening? Hold on, I have a I have a like a like another ingredient okay. to that. But I, I definitely don't want to miss the stories. Like, that's so important, feels so important. And just bringing in that word elderhood, like, like old person award versus being, in, you, but you said in being initiated as an elder. Um, yeah. I'm curious, Eileen, what that, what elderhood in that sense means for you? Yeah, what it, what that role is for you. What the role of elder? Yeah. I mean, you, you sort of um, said it. I, I think you implied it a little by I'm passing. I'm here to do what's mine to do. But I but I would I'm wondering if you can if you thought about that, if that's something that you if that's a role that you think about or, or hold or, or or have seen others do or. Yeah, I'm just curious what that means for you. I saw my, I saw my parents do it very well, you know, very well. And beyond my family which is the part of that, you know, it's not just, and being old does not mean being an elder, you know, because age really doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. But typically I think you think of an elder as somebody who has had enough experiences and done enough reflection, you know, to um, um, allow themselves to move through the passages of life thoughtfully. It thoughtfully. And so um, when, um, so I've been, I've been kind of pursuing this for maybe the last actively, actually not, and pursuing it in terms of inquiry, I would say, uh, in terms of about the last five or six years. And um, it really does have to do with, with, okay, I've been nation building, I've been doing all this work. And I've been doing, I've been actually doing the work. And now it's time for me not to really do the work any longer. It's time for me. I, I can do you know small parts of the work and that's fine. But it is really time for people 
in terms of constructing, deconstructing and reconstructing the, the uh, societies and communities and societies. And so my job is to help them. That's what my job is, is to, if I see them going awry, to say something, if they come and ask me, which typically happens is they come and ask for guidance, you know, and um, then I pitch it back at them and let them figure it out. But I will ask them the right questions. <laughs> and then I'll learn from them about what to do the next time, you know, so it's a, it's a kind of a, a better continuous learning process than I've ever been in, you know, and, um, and knowing that you all have the energy and the, the, the smarts and the wit to, to engage in the transformation or uh, to engage in your own transformation, because you got to do that you know, in order for the community to engage in its, in its transformation. So, you know, so um, th- did that answer your question? Totally. And it, it leads perfectly into Miriam's question about transformation uh, and stories that of transformation that, that you've seen. So I'd love to just like reemphasize that question too. So one of the transformations, this is a personal one. Um, happened when my father's twin was dying. And also my my next my second youngest son had lost his job. And my youngest son, who who is now deceased, he had um he had taken the keys of a friend of his, a girl whose father happened to be a policeman. And I knew the family. So, I mean, we knew the, we knew, I knew the family. And that was kind of the, a crazy, crazy, crazy day. And so I couldn't find the one, the, the youngest one. And I knew my uncle was dying and the, the, the middle one, I don't even know where he was, but he, but he did no longer lived at home. So I went up, I was by myself in the house and I went upstairs and I started screaming in the room. I was doing my primal scream thing, right? And then I said, I said, God, I said, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a bargain with you. You know, if you would you please stop hitting me, I mean knocking me down with a two by four. And the message I got was, Aline, stop knocking yourself down with the two by four. And I said, huh, I got it. That was the be- that was the beginning of a transformation that took me to a whole different place in terms of how I saw relationships, in terms of how I saw my role, in terms of what I was going to do next. But that's the best, that's the best one I can give you of my own of a transformation of mine by by coming by coming to and it didn't mean it happened overnight it means the epiphany happened right then the aha moment happened right then but it was deep but i had to stay on it in order to be able to see it through you had to reflect on it on an ongoing basis to see it through but it's coming to grips with something that is so very different 
and then behaving differently about it and feeling differently about it. You know that, but you know they do say in the in the twinkling of an eye, and that's really all it means. It, that all you got to do is think differently about something for it to be different, and we make we make it seem like it's something different than that. Okay, that's it. I would say it's a moment that brought you to your knees. Like the twinkling in an eye was like you were on your knees. It was like, ah, whatever. I'm just giving, you know, it's surrender is the word that comes. There was what I heard is a moment of surrender that allowed and like just like, ah, you know, and that allowed a bigger, you know, and a surrender to like, uh, you know, giving up the power that you were perhaps holding and like letting it down. To let that insight that and and that in that moment that insight landed in a different place. Exactly, because that's the, what you come to. You get you have no control over anything but yourself. What does that track? I'm just interested for both of you. Have you seen that that moment of surrender? That kind of like that, those moments. Have you seen that same thing happen in organisations and communities where you're doing your work? Does it operate? Does does like collective transformation operate in the same way? Um, what's your ob- you know, what are your observation stories about about that? I you know if, before we do that, I'd like to tell you about my transformation story because I think it's it, it this transformation story is a whole story. I'll try to keep it brief. I'll give you the gist, the gist of it. But um, so when I left the corporate world, I thought I was going to start this business. Really, I was very passionate about it. It was based in research and it was in Europe, the U.S. trails like by years. Um, I mean, the, the Europe trails the U.S. by years in a number of different trends and products. They always have, except for digital, except for digital, because digital Europe is way far ahead of the U.S. and a whole bunch of things. Um, but there are certain digital products that blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, I decided that I was going to manufacture color cosmetics nail polish because the nail polish craze hadn't jumped off in Europe like it had in the US with like these nail bars and nail polish, blah, 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 blah. So I start manufacturing this nail polish. Long story short, I started in 2012. By 2015, I was in 200 stores across Europe and the Middle East, our products. And um, and it started to get to a point where um, I started to outpace the, the orders were outpacing my ability to fill them. Because I was still so small, I had to contract manufacturers. So that meant that I had to pay for my products at the time of purchase. And there was a gap between the, my time of purchase and like retailers will pay you six months later. They don't care, right? So it could be like a six months gap. Anyway, I started to really get into a place where it was really challenging. And um, I decided I was gonna reshape our whole format with my team, I had a great team. And I went for a big fundraise, right, to raise money to do a proper like private equity fundraise for this business. And Brexit happened and everything fell apart and all the investors that we've been speaking to fell away. So I was like, I'm going to go back to the U.S. and I'm going to raise money in the U.S. because I'm an American citizen. I don't need any visas. I can just go there and I'll do it there. And I went through this whole process. And my kids, my two youngest children came with me. My husband and my eldest child stayed in the U.K. And I came here for a year to try to do this business thing. Anyway, long story short, it failed and it failed miserably. I'm talking about my ability to be able to raise in a way that was sustainable and everything I had, I sold my house, I sold everything and pushed, put it into this business, right? Basically to the point of nothing. And I'm not sure how much of this my mother knows. She probably knows some of it, but I had, I literally had times where I had no water 
in my house because I couldn't afford it. I had no electricity in my house because I couldn't afford it. I went through, I had no gas. I went through all of them, right, in my house. But like, I wasn't calling my parents all the time. Sometimes my mom would be like, do I, do I need to help you with something? I'm like, yeah, I need help with my mortgage. But I wouldn't say anything about the other things, right? It went, it was, went pear-shaped. But what I had to kind of get my head around was for so many years, for 25 years previously in my corporate life, I attached my entire ego to this job that I had. And when I left the job and people stopped calling, returning calls, all the things, I realized how much of my, how much of how people responded to me was tied into that business. I mean, to the corp, big corporate, you know, gold, shiny objects thing. Right. And so I came into my own and I had the assumption that people were going to respond to me the same way as my own entity, which didn't necessarily happen. And so there was a real journey of having to reduce, having to let go of my ego that I had built up over 25 years of investment banking with all kinds of like, I really had very few hitches in the road. I mean, I literally had a meteoric rise. I was a managing director in my like early thirties. I lived in all these countries around the world. I was doing the most in this space, right? And so I, and I tied all of my self-worth to it. And when I finally got into this business, it failed. Everything fell apart. I had no money, no friends. I mean, I had friends like my family, but all the people that were around me weren't around me anymore. It was so humbling. And it was one of the things that brought me back to this work because suddenly I remembered again what it was like not to have anything and how unfair that felt. But me being very, I had all the skills and capabilities to climb out of that and make a shift, but there were a whole bunch of people who don't. And I thought this can't be, right? This cannot be the thing. This can't be how it is for people. And it really lit a fire for me once again, even though I knew that I would come out of it and I knew that I'd be okay and that I'd build my way into something, wasn't sure what that was going to be. I had to detach my ego and it was a real wake up call and transformation for me around my social justice work prior to George Floyd. It wasn't about George Floyd for me. It was about feeling what it was to live pillar to post, feeling what it was for a mom to have to come from Ohio and take me to a supermarket to fill up my cupboards, knowing what that felt like, again, you know, like for a the first time really in my life. And so it gave me that transformation for me was I will never be complacent about the fact that I have the things that I have and I will always make sure that A, when I have the ability to give that I really give, and I've always been a giver, but I'm a real giver now even more so. And I will always um, fight for people who don't have who don't have the means to do it in the same way that I can. That's no little story. It's, it's exactly what we're talking about here. Those moments again of surrender. That bring us back into back, bring mm-hmm. us to a kind of a new understanding, or back back in your story to a sense of purpose, core purpose to that thread, to that thread mm-hmm. that we're following. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I, I am interested about how that trend. Like you, you both work with communities and organisations and transformation, and particularly around these, yeah. you know, these areas of you know social equality and what have you like what have you i mean we're interested like both the when you've seen it happen and and you know the the stories of like this is never going to happen and why and like just those there's there's two ends of the spectrum eileen you want to kick that or first um i guess what i would say is i have not seen a complete organizational um, transformation yet but but my organizational work is the most recent of my work 
if you will. You know, because I used to be doing policy advocacy for children and 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 things like that. That's where my where my um, uh, policy work at the governmental level was what where I was. It, this wasn't till recently, and once again, it, unlike India, so the, the, the so the complementariness has been fun, has been wonderful because she come. I've come from the public sector and the nonprofit sector, and she's come from the private sector, and there are differences in terms of how they operate, and and uh, when you and so I'm thankful for that. My husband was in corporate work too, and we used to laugh because he said I couldn't do I couldn't work where you are because you can't get anything done <laughs> because because you can't just tell somebody what to do. I said that's right. He said, oh. and I said I couldn't work where you work because it's inhumane the way they treat you all, where the way you all treat each other. You know, you know, and so so. But but what I would say is that this work is 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 though important is aspirational. I don't know that we'll ever have any answers. So what you do is you keep on trying and you keep on learning and you keep on um, saying, I think that organizational transformation can occur. I think that it takes a long, a good while. It doesn't, it, it will, it takes a good while. It depends on the size of the organization, depends on the nature or, of the organization. And it depends on actually the leadership's commitment to change at the time and to stay with the organization <laughs> through it. Because if they don't, you know, it's not going to fall off the table. There's just too many factors that um, uh, impact the transformation that you're talking about. Now, right now, we're working with an organization, a governmental organization, where it may occur... Um, in the near future, and I'll tell you why, because the top of the organization has left, left a year ago, and they've had interims, and the second interim is getting ready to leave, so that's gone. Because of COVID, a lot of people are leaving the organization, not because of the organization itself, but just because they want to be out. They don't even want to be working. If they can retire, they're retiring. So there's massive shift going on anyway, and if, and this is our third year, of, this is beginning of our fourth year of work with them. If that, all those things come into alignment in the way that they can, I would expect to see a transformation in this organization. You know, but I'll tell you in about a year, I'll tell you in about a year and a half. But all the, it just, it, there's, because there's no way to measure, I think, when an organization's ready, what's going on in the world? All those things are just truly, um, you got to kind of be in them when they happen and see what you can take advantage of at the time and iterate and iterate and iterate, but always stay true, do your best to stay true to your uh, equity, the philosophy of equity in it. Yeah, and if you can do that and, 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 they, and the people, because ultimately it's their work. You know, so you have to watch them do it. And that's why you don't know whether that'll happen or not. It reminded me of, I wrote, I wrote a, 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 a little article that it reminded me of about when my dad died. Uh, he said, you know, you know, Miriam, you know, all that's really important is a vision of love and faith. And I really got that, you know, the aspiration. You know, it's the aspiration because... Sometimes these, what I heard in it was sometimes these sort of transformations and what we're hearing is 
like a multi-generation, these transformations take place. Sometimes we don't see the fruits of our labor. It's beyond our depth. And it's that kind of that concept of seven generations forward, like work for seven generations forward. And the, and they're kind of like so so apart from that instant gratification <laughs> that some of our digital technologies have. I really hear that it's incremental and it's aspirational and just to keep going and to keep iterating and to keep trying. Um, and that, that, that and to, to have the, the foresight to realise that that incremental change happens over long, long periods of time. And perhaps our lifetime is very short in the longer period. So, yeah, that's, that's what I'm hearing. And I'm, I'm interested, India, in your take on it. And... Yeah, so I agree. I think that, I think at the macro level that's true. But I think that there are, I've witnessed micro transformational changes along the way. And I think that's the thing that keeps me going. And, and I think the one, I'll tell you the biggest piece of transformation for me to be honest, and, I, and I'm going to talk more about kind of racial equity work in this moment as opposed to any of the other stuff, but race specifically, is the realization that I had about the fact that in my experience, what tends to happen, the, the kind of the quantum leap in terms of being able to even have the conversation is about accepting that everybody comes to this with a different lens and experience and not making it anybody's fault when you're starting the conversation. And I'll get, just as an example of that, there are so many times, we do this foundational equity um, capacity building session before we start doing organizational development work with organizations, because you find that there's differences in terms of what people believe the definitions of any of this stuff are. People have their own preconceived notions of, around words, which are weaponized, which actually are just words, all the kind of things, right? And, and, and there's historical context that people don't know and understand. And it is always um, really gives me a lot of hope when I go into these sessions. And let's just say, I mean, like in a lot of cases, in most cases, we're talking majority white audiences because in corporate spaces, particularly, you know, the my ethnic, people of ethnic diversity tend to be lesser and fewer. So majority white audiences who come out the other side and they're like, wow, I didn't really know and understand it that way. And that creates a space for you to have the conversation. And what I found in this work is that a part of it is accepting that people don't have the answers and making it okay that they don't have the answers and not having expectations of how people are going to show what people know because i think we start from this vantage point of saying you know we all live in the same society surely you see all these things happening well actually not i've kind of come to understand after having done this work <laughs> because people really don't i mean like it, the reality is that you live in the space and world that you live in and that's your lens and that's your experience and so you don't necessarily and I'm talking about this in the corporate space, particularly, you know, that's your lens and that's your experience. So if you go home and your environment's totally homogenous, then you come to work and your environment's homogenous, your kids go to a family homogenous school, if you go to a place of worship, that's homogenous too, then you're not going to understand the experience of somebody who has to do the navigational thing all the time. And and if you if they're not showing it to you, which we don't, because we're taught also, you don't, we're not showing the navigation, we're just doing it. And you don't see it as that. You just see people going on about their life like you're going on about yours. Then there's not, there's a real gap and disconnect. And one of the things I've seen is that, you know, you often hear people of color and marginalized groups saying that somebody who is of dominant culture being silent means they're complicit. Like, oh, you're, if your silence means you're complicit. 
right? And then you have people who are dominant culture who are some of whom are really becoming aware of some of this stuff for the first time, really and truly in, in the level of depth that we're all experiencing it now, who are like, I'm not saying a damn thing because I've seen cancel culture. And if I get it wrong, I know what's going to happen. So you have this gulf in between of people who have an expectation that people can talk about it and people who are scared as heck to talk about it because of what it might mean if they get it wrong. Not entirely, but there's a lot of that, which creates a space that we can't talk and have the conversations. And so the thing that makes me really excited is going in and being able to at least resolve that gap so we can have the conversations. And that for me is the kind of micro transformation that actually makes me know that we're not going to, everybody's not going to be on the journey, but there are a whole bunch of folks if given the tools, if you support them appropriately and not step into the space with judgment about what they know or will do off the bat changes things. That's kind of my view. Oh, I would, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I like that look because I was really talking macro yeah. stuff even more. And so I, I would agree with that. Um, I also think in addition to that, the one thing that we haven't talked about that we've been talking more about is healing as opposed to trauma. Um, because what we found in our organizational work is there's so much there's so much woundedness people bring into the the spaces that we don't pay attention to, and, you, and we and actually that we pretend doesn't exist. And then when we talk about it, we talk about trauma, so we're talking about something negative again. Whereas in order to transform, I think the surrender and the healing the sun there's something about surrender and healing that kind of go hand in hand for me. Right. Um, but what I would say is I think that we specifically need to also center healing in the work that we do. And that means not that you do a couple of workshops and you're healed. It means that you understand the practice of healing your own. And that enables you to stay able to navigate that enables you to stay somewhat balanced in the midst of chaos that enables you to um, uh, relieve your confusion and perhaps have clarity. You know, and so we've really t been again talking about, I think, how you how you do that. How do you how do you do that? And how do you how do you equip people with that even before you might do some of the other stuff? Even before you might start talking about um, the foundations that found in the equity foundations before you talk, start talking about the, the, um, um, j just to, just because it's relational and it ha that is something that you have absolute control over. And how do you step into spaces and bring, bring light? How do you, you know, how do you step into the spaces and do that? And if people can even consider those things, then they come better prepared really for life, but, but for all these different things in life as well. So I just wanted to add that. So much. I'm so grateful for so many reasons for this two-part conversation. You know, first of all, to have um, perspectives, uh, you know, I would say intersectionality is, is being a big word because here it's like, um, you know, both gender, race, um, generational aspects and to see the complexity and to hear the complexity and to feel the complexity 
of, of, of all of these things and how they affect us in our own personal transformation, in our collective transformation, in our communities. Um, from a policy level, Eileen, your work in policy to work in, in everyday organisational communities, um, both profit, for-profit and not-for-profit. And I feel like we could do a 10-parter uh, on this and, and, and so grateful for both of you in the world. Um, your authenticity, the way that you, um, the way that your workers, your family, has has brought people who are so strongly in service through generations, um, and can serve and bring that service to us today. Uh, Adam, um, I want to hand to you for any final questions before we kind of have a. No, I just want to add my thanks for. Um, I want to say like navigating our our ignorance, and helping helping to. Um, you know, through your stories and through your perspectives to um, increase our view of the world um, and different experiences and, and how to, and how, through how you bridge that and you've bridged that for us and also in organizations and in the work that you do. So just adding to Miriam's list of thanks um, for the work that you do, the the work of being here and, and, uh, and sharing with us and get, and that we get to be a part of that. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, daughter, for being here. <laughs> yes, thanks for having us. It's been it's been great. It's been great. And for all the things that I've learned from you all, as you two as well, I've had the opportunity. Perhaps that India hasn't hasn't had, but I certainly thank you for helping me to learn how to navigate my way through some of that crazy stuff too. <laughs> we appreciate you having us. I, I you know, it's always it's always nice to be able to have conversations authentically and openly about our journeys, but also um, to be able to help people on their on theirs. And so I just I'm grateful for that opportunity. So thank you for having us for me too. And and just to like ways that people can access your work. Um, so anything, you know, ways that they can access your work and, and where that's focused now, just to, to, to point people. I'm sure that many people listening to this would like to learn further with you. Yes. Um, so if you want to connect with me and have some conversations, it's best to get me on LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn all the time. And I'm always talking about controversial things that people tell me I shouldn't be talking about on LinkedIn, but I do it anyway. And then um, the other place is my website, which is www.leadershipforexecs.com. Um, and um, I'm kind of in a lot of places. So you can; those are probably the best to, to get me. And if you want to get my mom, I'll let her say where she is, but you can also get her to through me too, because I'm, I'm her secretary. <laughs> so you can get her on my LinkedIn page and I'll forward it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, actually I'm on LinkedIn, but you I don't check the messages. Don't, don't just send it to me. I'll help out. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll. <laughs> the truth comes out. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much to both of you. And um, we're looking forward to many more adventures together in the future. Awesome. Thank Sounds you. Good to me. Beyond Listening podcast is brought to you by We Are Open Circle.
a social impact business that helps change makers, organizations, and community groups evolve and thrive with integrity in our rapidly changing world. Our Beyond Listening program was designed to transform the way organizations work with complexity, rapid change, and the wisdom of diversity in a world that demands constant collective adaptation. Sign up for our newsletter for more Beyond Listening podcasts and view our upcoming trainings.